The Open Door Christian Church proudly presents Storytime with Miss Anna May. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm just tickled that y'all are here this morning for Storytime with Miss Anna May. Let's just jump right in. Today's story is called Let's Be Enemies, and it's written by Janice May Udry. Here we go. James used to be my friend. But today, he is my enemy. James always wants to be the boss. James carries the flag. James takes all the crayons. He grabs the best digging spoon. And he throws sand. So now, James is my enemy. Now, he hasn't got me for a friend. When James was my friend, I invited him to my birthday party. I always shared my pretzels and my umbrella with him. I showed him where the horny toad lives. In fact, we were such good friends that we had the chicken pox together. But I wouldn't have the chicken pox with James now. Mm -mm. He is my enemy. James always wants to be the boss. I'm going to go on over and I'm going to poke James. I think I'll put his crayons in the soup. I'm going to tell them not to let James go to school because he always wants to be the boss. James will think he's the boss of the whole school. I'm going to go right over to James' house and I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him that from now on, he is my enemy. And he'll have no one to play with. Hello, James. Hello, John. Well, I came to tell you that I'm not your friend anymore. Well, then, I'm not your friend anymore either. We're enemies. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, James. What? Let's roller skate. Okay. Have a pretzel, John. Thank you, James. The end. I'm glad you clapped for that one. Thank you again, Miss Anna May. When I was a kid, there was a commercial, and uh, it was for breakfast cereal. And the jingle, and, and I'm sure somebody somewhere out there is going to be offended for some reason about this now, but you know what? The jingle was Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Remember that? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. We live kind of in a Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs country right now, don't we? I keep thinking about it in, in, in this whole series that we're doing of Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and I think, you know, it's so easy to say, but it is so true our nation needs Jesus. And yet when we say that, people think we're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. 
And so this message today, this, this is going to be a, going to be a challenging one, but you get to make a decision. We're going to talk about enemies because that's what Jesus talks about. You get to make a decision. You either get to be like one of the disciples that Jesus is talking to and he's challenging them for how it is that they're going to approach and live their lives, or either you get to be like one of the crowd that hears what Jesus says, but doesn't have any real expectation to do anything about it. It's important because people everywhere are picking enemies for almost what seems to be no reason other than you don't agree with what someone said. We're picking enemies over the most stupid of things. We got all kinds of reasons we say that we do anyway. That we say that they make sense, at least to us. Like in the story, maybe somebody's too bossy. You just don't like being around them because they're too bossy. Maybe you don't agree with what they believe. Maybe their beliefs make you uncomfortable or their view about an issue just drives you crazy because they're so completely wrong. And that's what we say, right? They're wrong. And because they're wrong, we make them an enemy. The only thing that makes them wrong is that we say that they are. When was disagreeing a reason to unfriend someone? I'll tell you when. There's this thing called Facebook. And you maybe have 50 friends or 500 or 1,500 friends on Facebook. And you know what? We've got this wonderful ability on Facebook. When someone regularly says something you don't like, you can block them. And if you really want to exert your power, you can unfriend them. And now they're not your friend anymore because they said something or a series of things that caused them to become your enemy. It's just like the boys in the story. There are a lot of people in America that need to grow up right now. And unfortunately, I think that includes a lot of us as Christians. Here's why. We fall into this American thing that if someone doesn't agree with me, they're my enemy. But I'm preaching as the pastor of a Christian church to a congregation full of people who have gathered at a Christian church. The only enemy that we have is the enemy of God. The enemy of God is our enemy. Make no mistake, he's hard at work and he's having quite a run. The devil is absolutely having a heyday in the United States these days. So today we're going to continue Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 38 to 48. We've got to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to talk quickly. It's a section where Jesus, once again, is taking the law, and he's not dismissing it, the Old Testament law, but rather what he's doing is he's building on it and saying there's more there than what you were told. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're going to live in this world as a believer in me, there's more than what you've been taught so far. And that's what Jesus is getting to. And what we find out is his message is challenging. That's why I say you get to choose to be one of the disciples who says, okay, I'm going to take a good hard look at this and see what I need to put into practice in my life. Or you can say, you know what? Not for me. We're going to talk about that in a little bit too. So if you've got your Bibles, Matthew 5, verse 38 is where we're going to begin. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It sounds so extreme. Unless you're the one who's been wronged, unless you're the one who's looking for a little bit of revenge, it it seems like a harsh thing because it's the Bible saying it. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How in the world did they live back in those days, huh? So a little bit of first century context is helpful here. See, God's intent for the law was to provide a way to restrain us 
from overreacting and to doing things that we shouldn't, to show mercy, to have healthy relationships with God and with other people. And in this case, part of the reason for the law was to limit the human desire for revenge. And if you're wondering what Jesus is talking about, the last time somebody did something that hurt you or offended you or in some way caused you pain, you have the thought, just like I do, that says they deserve or I deserve too. That's the beginning of revenge. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Way back then, uh, if a person were to be injured, even accidentally, or if a family member were to be killed, it was not uncommon for someone from that person's family or for the injured one to go and to at least exact the revenge by doing the same to someone else. But what happened, human revenge being what it is, especially in the case of someone taking a life, not only would they go kill the person who took the first life, but they would kill their family. They might even kill the entire village. And so when Jesus is talking about an eye for an eye, God's command is that the response wouldn't be worse than the offense, how quickly a robbery can turn into murder. And that's what he's getting at here. Uh, Revenge killings, they still happen in our world. They happen all over the place, including in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, We don't hear much about shootings so much anymore. There's news that's more interesting to people than that. But an awful lot of the shootings, I understand, are revenge killings. So you go all the way back to Cain and Abel in the very beginning of the Bible, and what happened? People have tempers. People have tempers and they feel that because they have a a temper, they, they get upset, they get their nose a little bit out of joint, and they decide that they're going to go get revenge for whatever reason. And murder is often the result of an unrestrained sense of vengeance. So what does it matter to you and I? What it matters is that you and I have this feeling that says, this thought that says, I deserve. I deserve, therefore they deserve. And what I want you to be clear about before we get any further into this, the Bible makes very clear what it is that we deserve. What we deserve is to spend an eternity in hell. That's what we deserve, period. You're not entitled to anything. You don't deserve anything more than that. Our sin buys us a one-way ticket were it not for Jesus That's where we'd all be going. I read about a guy that spent six years in jail. This is a couple decades ago. Spent six years in jail. He was guilty of domestic assault. He didn't even deny it. He did it. He got caught. The woman who testified to get him put in jail ended up going on having a baby. He spent six years in jail planning one thing. The day that he got out, he made his way to her home. He waited there, he killed her, he killed her daughter, and he killed another woman in the house. Six years exacting revenge. What God is trying to do with the law is make sure that the vengeance isn't worse than the original act. That was a little bit of overboard getting revenge, I would say, because he actually believed he was in the right, that they had it coming, they deserved it for putting him in jail. Talk about cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And yet that's the world we live in. It's what happens when we insist that whatever it is that we happen to believe, and even better, if we can find a Bible verse to support us, we must be right. Well, what we need to know is that vengeance is best left to God. Let God take care of that stuff. So then what are we supposed to do? What should we do? Verse 39, Jesus goes on and he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... Turn to him the other also. Do you hear that? Don't resist. Don't oppose. Don't fight. Don't argue. Someone who's truly evil, whatever that means, 
If they do something to you, don't stand and oppose them. Don't resist them. Don't fight them. And so a little bit of first century context helps here too. Jesus is very clear. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, it's an interesting thing to put in the Bible. And I tell you, when, when we study the Bible, ask the word why. Why white, why right cheek? Here's why. First century context, if someone slapped you in the cheek, that wasn't necessarily an invitation to a fight. That was kind of how they communicated, apparently. But think about it. If someone slaps you in the right cheek, and you can put your hand up and figure this out yourself. Someone slaps you on the right cheek, they have to be left-handed, right? Correct? To slap you in the right cheek, they got to be left-handed. Unless they slap you with the back of their hand. And most of the world, sorry lefties, most of the world is right-handed. The message that Jesus is giving, if someone slaps you in the right cheek, it's with the back of their hand. What they understood in his day was that was an incredible offense. To slap someone in the cheek with the back of your hand was was tantamount to, to challenging them to a duel. It was challenging their manliness. It was challenging their place. It was a challenge. No question about it. Jesus says if they do that, turn to the other, turn the other cheek as well. It's where we get the idea of a backhanded compliment. A backhanded compliment, everybody knows, isn't a real one, right? Backhanded compliment is someone says something nice, but they actually mean something that isn't. So how does that translate today? You know what? What Jesus is saying is, when someone verbally slaps you in the face, because it doesn't happen very often that we actually do, but it happens. When someone slaps you in the face, even if it's a verbal slap in the face, rather than fighting or defending yourself or getting all upset about the insult or arguing with them, what he's saying is you simply remain quiet and you continue to allow them to insult you. Not your first response. It's not mine either. But here's the thing. It's exactly what Jesus did in his life. It's exactly the response that Jesus gave. See, Jesus isn't just... An example, Jesus is our standard. He didn't just preach it. He did it. You go to the last days of Jesus' life, abused, beaten, given an opportunity for a defense. And what the Bible says is he remained silent before his accusers. See, Jesus knew what was coming ahead for him, but he also knew what the disciples were going to face, that they were going to face ridicule, that they were going to face mockery, that they were going to face insults. And what he's saying to them is, don't fight back. We're bringing about, Jesus is saying that we're bringing about a new way of living. And the law doesn't cover it all. But understanding that relationships is really what the law is about. So the next time someone insults you, the next time someone gives you a verbal slap in the face, rather than getting offended and defending yourself and beginning an argument, you know what? Just stay silent. Remember the verse, and he stood silent before his accusers. Because you know what? They're going to continue on, and before long, they're going to realize how ridiculous they sound, and they're going to start to feel pretty stupid. They may never apologize, but they're going to know it. Verse 40, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. America is a lawsuit-happy country. I just read recently that uh, there's, there's attorneys that are suggesting that the next 20 years the court system is going to be inundated with COVID-19 lawsuits. And what they're going to be is people who lost income or people who got sick or people who lost a business, and they've got to find someone to pin it on. And it hasn't started yet, but they're saying it's going to happen. The next wave of cuckoo for coconuts in America is going to be, or cocoa puffs, excuse me, The next wave is going to be lawsuits that you can't pin on anybody. But it's what we like to do. So what Jesus said is, if someone sues you for your tunic, 
Give them your cloak as well. Well, what does that mean to us? It's kind of hard to understand. A man would wear two garments, an outer garment, a heavier one. It was more expensive, called a cloak. And then he wore an inner garment, an undergarment, not his underwear, but an undergarment that was also a full-length one called a tunic. A man would typically have a few tunics because they'd be laundered more often, but he would only have one cloak because they were expensive. There was no provision in Old Testament law that a man had to give up his cloak. But a tunic could be used to seal a deal. It could be used as a good faith gesture of an agreement. It could be used for a lot of things. And so not only could a tunic be sued for, but Jesus is saying, if he does that, give him your cloak as well. What's the point? Don't get caught up in stuff. Don't get offended by, by the statement. If someone says they're going to take you to court for your tunic, you know what? Let them have your cloak as well. Be a living example of surprising and loving generosity. And the crowd that's listening, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and we've talked about this. There's a crowd that's gathering and hearing it. The crowd is going, what's wrong with this guy? That's not the way we live. It's not our culture. That's not how we handle things. But Jesus is trying to prepare, prepare his disciples for the days ahead. As we read these texts today, Jesus is trying to prepare you for the days ahead. So I said, you can either choose to take this as a disciple or a follower of Jesus that says, I'm going to try to be more like that because I want to be more like him. Or you can choose to hear it as one of the crowd and go, nope, not the way I want to live. I like the way I am. Thank you. Jesus gets to that attitude in a little bit. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. How about that? Be willingly generous with your time and effort. If you have no choice but to go one mile with someone, offer to go two. Be willingly generous. Do more than what's asked. That makes a statement about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, that we do more than what anyone would ask of us. I don't know how many of you have worked in the food service industry, but I did in college. I was a server at a restaurant, a really lousy one. But I was a server at a restaurant, and I learned something. And so it's been been something that I've kept in touch with over all of those decades since. And here's what I know. If you're a server in the food industry, you're going to be able to say this is true, but the inside secret is nobody talks about it, so I'm going to talk about it because I'm no longer in the business. Do you know the one shift that nobody in the food service industry wants? There's one, every place, every week, there's one shift that nobody wants. Sunday after church. You know why? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I made the mistake of doing that at first service. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if that's true, because I know it's true. Do you know why? Because Christians leaving church love to eat big and rack up big bills and leave nothing for the server. And nobody wants the shift Right after church, because Christians across the country love to go out and gather big groups of people after they've been to church and the servers walk away with next to nothing. And what Jesus is saying is, you know what? Be surprisingly and willingly generous. You want to surprise somebody? Surprise your server, not with a 20 percent, but even better tip. Do you think they want to be there on a Sunday afternoon? Nope, they got that shift. They didn't choose it. Jesus is saying, be surprisingly and willingly generous. Do more than what's expected of you. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Be generous with your money. Do people know Christians to be generous? By and large, no. Ask a server at a restaurant. The bottom line to this verse is either you trust God with your money or you don't. How you give, how much you give, is going to show the true answer. Here's the way I figure it. If I can afford to go out to eat, I can afford to pay the extra and build it into that bill to the server who's just provided me a meal. Think about it. You don't cook. You get to order anything you want. 
And you don't have to do dishes. That's worth a tip. As Christians, we're known for being cheap. To me, that's heartbreaking. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus actually is the first place that it says love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor was a confusing term. It has been for us in the church for all these years. Martin Luther dealt with who is my neighbor. In Leviticus, in the Old Testament, they understood your neighbor literally to be the people right next to you, in your neighborhood, in your community, the people of your own faith. Love them as you love yourself. Anybody outside that group didn't have to worry about them. It was just those people who were just like you. The statement about hating your enemy, that doesn't come from the Bible. It's cultural. The idea being, if this is my enemy and I have to love them, or this is my neighbor and I have to love them, those people that I don't know, they're not like me, they don't look and talk like me, they must be my enemy. If you love like the ones who are like you, then you must hate the one who is unlike you. That's the understanding, and Jesus is going, nope, that's not right, and yet we're still dealing with that in our world today. So where do enemies come from? They come from hatred. They come from misunderstanding. They come from an offended ego or some other offense. And that's why Jesus goes on and he says this. And and remember the first context. He's talking to his disciples and the crowd is listening. And the crowd is going, who is this guy? And and, and what kind of a world is he trying to create? Who does he expect us to be? The disciples know that he expects them to be like him. But the notice that he's serving to the crowd is, if you're going to be a Christian... Part of being a Christian is to be a disciple like these guys. And you know what their job is? It's to be more like me and less like themselves. So you've got the decision to make. Are you going to be like the disciples and become a disciple of Jesus? Or are you comfortable in the crowd? Because he says this, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That crowd had to go, what? Why would you love your enemies and why would you pray for the people that persecute you? It's the point where a lot of people... A lot of people say, I'm willing to believe in Jesus, but I'm not willing to allow him to tell me how to live. I am not going to live the way some other guy from 2,000 years says I have to live. And yet Jesus is saying, this is what I expect of you as a disciple of mine. Jesus is telling you and I, if you call yourself a Christian, to have a heart like his. And this is what it looks like. The heart like Jesus is one that the world actually gets to see. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross in the last hours of his life? Been beaten and paraded through town, nailed to the cross and stuck in the ground. And his comment isn't, God, how can you put me here? I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. He prays for those who are killing him. He prays. They're not just persecuting him. They're in the active process of murdering him. And his response is to pray for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus didn't just give us an example. Jesus set a standard. He lived and he died as that standard. The word for the uh, in Greek that the Bible uses for love here is agape. It's that love. It's godly love. It's love that's bigger than us, that we can't create or give on our own. It's more powerful than we are. And yet it's something that we choose to give to someone knowing they're not going to give it back in return. Knowing that there's not an agreement isn't I love you if you will love me. It's I love you, period. That's the love that God has for you and I. God didn't say I love you if you love me back. God says I love you and I'm sending my son to die for you. And now you get to make the decision of where you go from there. 
Agape love is the love that we want to have for each other, but so often our love becomes conditional. The cost might be too much. And what ends up happening is that we create enemies. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why do we do this? To be a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit less like our enemy-making selves. And I love this passage. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In the Middle East, rain is an incredible blessing because it's a desert. It doesn't happen very often. The sun rises in the morning, and I love that God makes his sun rise on the good and on the evil, the just and the unjust. We don't get to decide who God loves. We don't get to decide who God favors or who God considers just or unjust. See, we play favorites. That's how we end up with enemies. But God shines his sun on everyone. That's a major lesson for us in this divided nation that we're living in today. We don't really have an excuse to say, I'm a Christian, therefore I deserve. I deserve an eternity in hell. But as a Christian, we have a responsibility to model the life and the love and the standard of Jesus to the world around us. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, and they were the most hated people around, do not even the tax collectors do the same? What if you're kind only to the people who are kind to you first? If you're friendly only with the people who agree with you. If you consider your friends only the folks who believe and think like you do, you end up with a a small handful of people who think and act and talk and believe just like you, no matter whether you're biblically right or not. You've heard me say this for years, and I'm going to do it again. And for some reason in this season, it seems to upset people more than it has in the past. But here we go. If people know you by your political affiliation not by your Christian witness, you have a problem. If people know that you're a Democrat or if people know that you're a Republican, but they don't know that you're a Christian, you have a problem. If the thing that you stand for is your political ideology, not the gospel of Jesus, you have a problem. If you make more noise because people don't agree with your particular brand of thinking than you do the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, you have a problem. If your identity and your politics are determined by the party you prefer, not by the gospel that saves you, you have a problem. This is why we have a problem in America. There's only one that's going to heal this land, and we will never vote that person into office. That person died for your sins 2,000 years ago. He alone can heal this land. And the longer that we demand and insist that our particular brand of politics are right, we get further and further from the hope of Jesus saving us. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? (laughs) Think about that. Think about who you talk to. Think about who you canoodle with. Think about who you choose to have coffee and treat kindly. If you talk to only people who are nice to you, people who agree with you, Jesus says you're not living or acting like a Christian. We're living and acting like the Gentiles, people who do not know God. We do that and we're living and acting like people who don't know God in a personal way. And so using Jesus again as an example here, he took his disciples on the the way back home one time through a country called Samaria. Jews avoided Samaria because Jews avoided Samaritans. You know why? Because they were enemies. 
Samaritans were half Jewish, and the, the purebred Jewish thought they were absolutely awful people. There was nothing about them that was good. The Samaritans had their own ideas of worship and their own ideas of living and their own customs and traditions and all that. And Jesus does the unthinkable, and he walks his disciples through Samaria. And he did it because he wanted to stop at a well one day. And the well that he stopped at, he was waiting, and a woman came walking out of town, a Samaritan woman. He begins a conversation with her, the first thing he shouldn't have done after the thing about walking through the country and stopping at the well. He begins a conversation with her. He lets her know that he knows everything about her. He asks her if he could use her cup to get a drink of water, and she says, uh-uh, that's not the way it works. You shouldn't be asking that. And yet he does. And before this encounter is over, Jesus shows such incredible love to her. He, he didn't, didn't make her feel guilty about her sinfulness. He simply acknowledged that he was aware of it. And Jesus showed such incredible love to this woman that he shouldn't have taken a drink from, shouldn't have had a conversation with, and yet he did. And that is our standard. That is the standard that Jesus set for us. It isn't just an example. It's the standard. It's what is expected. But you can choose to to follow the route that the Pharisees did, and that's to live by the law, believing that you can do good enough, that your good works will get you to heaven. People still do that. Churches still teach it. The problem is the Bible tells us how wrong it is. You can claim to live within the law. You can claim to be able to dodge sin and live above it, and your good works overdo anything that, that might not be so good, and that your holy thinking and your self-righteous condemning of others is your birthright. You have the opportunity to do that. But Jesus has a really tough word if you're going to, if you're going to take that line. Verse 48, he says this, Now, what he's talking to before we get there, he's talking to the disciples who are learning a whole new way from him and the crowd that is hearing that just understands what it is to be going to the church of the day. If you do that, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. If you're only going to do the bare minimum as a Christian, if you're only going to do the basic that you choose to believe that the law requires and you're going to ride in on the coattails you think of keeping yourself free from sin and by trusting in the law, Jesus says, then you must do it perfectly as your Father is perfect. There's no good enough or pretty good or not too bad. You know, us Scandinavians, we like not too bad. The other option, of course, is to take the hard road because that's what the crowd's doing, right? The harder road is what the disciples are doing. That's to take the hard words of Jesus and, and accept his truth. And realize that it's spoken in love and realize that you and I are the sinners that are dying in need of a Savior. You and I are the ones he's talking to. See, because of Jesus, we know we don't have to be perfect because we're forgiven because he is perfect. And with Jesus as our standard, as Jesus as our example, we can and we should approach these days that we're living in in a very, very different way. These days are uncertain. They're unpredictable. They're frightening. For a lot of people, life is just terrifying right now. But see, when we choose to follow Jesus, we can approach the days we're living in in the full confidence, knowing that he is the answer to the problems that plague and perplex and vex our nation. He's the answer. You don't have to be. Politician isn't going to be. Jesus is the answer that calms our fears. He's the one that turns our enemies into our friends in the unity of his spirit. It's Jesus that can heal this land, but here's the catch. It begins with you and I. 
Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. He wasn't speaking to the crowd, but he allowed the crowd to hear. Those 12 men were going to begin to change the world. It begins with you and I, because if we don't live and act and talk like Christians who trust Jesus, what right do we have to expect that anybody else will? We can call out other people's bad behavior. We can call out all the things that they're doing that they shouldn't, that we believe they shouldn't. But if we're not living as disciples of Jesus, if we're not proclaiming the good news of the gospel in our life and in our words and in our actions, then we can't expect anybody else is going to. So what do you do? Love Jesus, love people, teach people to love Jesus. It's so simple. It's so very simple. Where do you begin? You begin by loving Jesus. And then you love people the way that Jesus loves them. And then you begin to teach those people to love Jesus the way that you do. And a little bit at a time, Jesus is able to heal this land one person at a time. That's why it says to love your enemies. You know why? When you love your enemies, they see Jesus in you. Your enemies expect to look back and see an enemy. What happens when your enemies look at you and see Jesus? That's when things begin to change. Let's pray. God, thank you for this hard word. It isn't comfortable. It isn't fun. It isn't easy. 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke to this crowd, and he could just as well have been speaking to us today, every single one of us. So, God, my prayer would simply be this. Then rather than us saying, I'm doing pretty good, I'm not actively hurting or hating anybody, I'm not doing anything wrong, God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would, would push in us the things that that we're not doing that live to your standard. The things that we're not doing that fully appreciate what it is that you've done for us. And then you would point out not only how it is that we can change those things, but how it is that we can bring you to the world, how it is that we can show the world you in us. God, help us to love people the way that you love people. Because that's the hardest thing in the world. It's easy to make enemies. It's hard to love them. In Jesus' name, amen. So John and James in that book that we heard that was just so awesome. Thank you. That was great. You, do you realize what brought them together? At the end, they had something in common, right? You, you can have enemies for all the things you don't have in common, but they came together because they had something in common. And, and so all we got to do is find something in common with people. So some folks are going to leave church today and they're going to go, Pastor told us not to eat out because we're bad tippers. No, he didn't. The disciples are going to leave church and go, you know what? Our area restaurants are struggling. We're so grateful to have them. Pastor told us to go and support them and be super generous with our tips. That's what the pastor said, right? That was not real enthusiastic. Let's go back to the beginning. Have a seat. I'm going to start that message over. No, here's the thing. The world doesn't expect us to be generous in any way. And yet what more could Jesus have done for us than to give us his life? When we go out into the world, let's just bring a little bit of that generosity out there. And so you know what? Be generous. Be beyond what is expected of us. And if anybody asks a question, just say, hey, you know what? Jesus loves you. I guarantee you'll make a server's day.